This is episode 185 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Schoolhouse Burning Public Education with Derek Black. This is the first in our series about education and teachers. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I have a treat for you today. I'm really thrilled to announce that I have a new guest with us. Derek Black is with us with his really interesting book, another book out of public affairs, which is a division of Hachette. And the title is Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. Derek, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So excited to be here. Yes, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, but first I'm going to tell the listeners a little bit about you. Uh, Derek's a professor of law and one of the nation's foremost experts in education law and policy. He focuses on educational equality for disadvantaged students and the privatization of public education. His commentary and essays have appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Washington Post, Atlantic Newsweek, goes on and on. And his scholarly work has been published in the Yale Law Journal, Stanford Law Review, and other legal journals. He's currently teaching at the University of South Carolina. So first, Derek, congratulations on a great book. Yeah, thank you. It it was certainly a a labor of love and, and excited to share it with other folks. Let's start with some basics. The, the book is uh, really packed with the information, but let's start with kind of a general premise of the book is that the U.S. has a historical commitment to the constitutional right to education, although it's not explicitly in our U.S. Constitution. So, so tell me how you've arrived at this conclusion that it's a constitutional right. Yeah, I mean, I sort of start trying to rebut the notion that it's not because the first thing that that the other folks will say is, well, it's not in the Constitution. And what I point out in the book is actually we had a commitment to public education before we even had a Constitution. So our Constitution doesn't exist uh, at the time of the nation's founding. That takes a little bit longer. We had the Articles of Confederation. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our founding fathers fully understood that we were doing something radical in America. We were we were going from a monarchy to, you know, democracy by a wide swath of people. Of course, you know, women and minorities were still excluded at that time, but we were moving from a monarch only, an elite only system of government to, to one of, of common people or common men, I guess would be a white men would be a better way to state it. Common white men with land. It's it actually really a narrow group. But the point here being that, you know, they said, look, if we're going to hand over political power to regular folks, uh, we got to make sure they're educated. So the idea that you would let uneducated, unlearned individuals make major decisions about a, a new and vast nation was troubling. Uh, and so, you know, Adams, Washington, Jefferson, I mean, all of them are 
advocating for public education before we have a constitution. And, you know, Adams himself drafts the Massachusetts Constitution, which predates the U.S. Mm -hmm. And he obligates the state of Massachusetts to provide public education forever. And there was also, and I focus in on the book, the Northwest Ordinance, which also precedes the Constitution. And I say, look, the Northwest Ordinance was actually part of the deal of passing the Constitution. At that moment in time, you had all, you had these colonies making competing claims to the Western lands. You know, um, Virginia thought it owned everything in the, in the, in the Northwest and West of the Mississippi. And, you know, Connecticut thought they did too in Pennsylvania. So you had all these competing claims and, one of the central things they had to do to pass a constitution was to figure out who owns this land and how are new lands going to become states. Okay. Yeah. And so the Northwest ordinance is that deal by which the colonies give up their, their rights to those lands and then enter into this new constitutional scheme. What does education have to do with that? Well, in the Northwest ordinance, it it, it carves up every little town, and the territories and says every state's going to be broken up into these squares. Um, so if you go through Ohio and you look at sort of where the county lines are, they're far straighter than the county lines uh, along the eastern seaboard and in the southeast. And that's because that was part of the Northwest Ordinance. And they said in the center of each and every little square, you have to reserve a piece of land for public schools and that these communities shall forever cherish these these public schools. And so from the beginning, we have a land deal that mandates that public education be the center square of every little community that would develop in the rest of America. We've come a long way, I guess, <laughs> or not. Yeah, or not. <laughs> and so in the book, you express a hope that by focusing on education, especially now during a very fraught period for our democracy, that it can remind us of the importance of our democracy and our American values, really. So how do you make that connection? Well, I mean, I think your phrasing of the question helps me make it because I think what we saw was, was a nation, both at the founding, that says, how are we going to come together as a people? How are we going to make voting by the people work? How are we going to agree on things, right? And they said public education is at the center. We still had a lot of exclusion of women and, 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 and slaves at that moment and African-Americans who weren't slaves in the North as well. And following the Civil War, we try to correct that error and say, how are we going to fix that? And we say, we're going to fix that by mandating through Southern state constitutions, public education and telling the Confederacy, you can't come back into this union unless you provide for education. Right. So, again, we use education to rebind the democracy, to bring new people into it. And I think the big idea of the book at the end is that, you know, I think many of us fear that our democracy is dissembling at mm -hmm. this moment in time. And there are calls from the president and Betsy DeVos to further dissemble our public schools and, and into private education. And so I think the, the point that I'm trying to make is if, if, if our democracy is dissembling at this moment, and I'll leave that to your listeners to decide for themselves, but if it is, history teaches us that we reassemble and bring this nation together through a commitment to common, equal public education for all. That's the only way we've ever done it. And there's no basis to believe that we could do it any other way. 
I personally have become very worried about the state of public education in the United States, but it's very hard for me to tell if my worries are justified or not. I think that's true for a lot of us. We become worried about something. So earlier this year, I did a whole series about journalism and journalists because I'm also very worried about that particular institution, if you can call it that. And then the second one that is really on the top of my list is public education, especially, you know, because I become worried that people in the United States are, are not uh, aware. So ignorance is a kind of a mean word, but I don't mean it in a pejorative way. People just don't know history and really some basics of education that I would anticipate, which as the founding fathers wrote, you know, leaves you open to fraudsters and confusion and all kinds of really bad things. So do you feel as though in general, we are less educated in the United States or is that even not the right question to ask? Well, I mean, I think you're throwing out a couple of things. So if I could try to break them apart, mm-hmm. I mean, I think your, 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 your first instinct I think lines up perfectly with a TED talk that I gave about uh, two years oh. ago. Oh, yeah, I gave a TED talk that was sort of it was part education, it was part cultural media literacy, mm-hmm. and what I sort of talked about there was the things that you're afraid about. Right, people aren't actually reading anymore. Um, they don't read the article; they read the headline on Twitter. Um, they don't read the book; they listen to you know. Fox or MSNBC's characterization of the book, if they even talk about books on those stations very much anymore. But it's always some sort of approximation of the truth at best, right? Mm -hmm. And that means that the approximators, uh, so to speak, have tremendous power right now, right, to sort of shape the truth. And until people dig below that, they're at the mercy of the approximators. And then to go one step further, we have unprofessional approximators, right? And that's just sort of the, that that's us, you know? I mean, there's things that I'm unprofessional about that I, uh, you know, act like I know a lot about, but maybe I don't. And so, you know, we, we're relying upon third and fourth hand versions of the truth from people who may or may not even be expert in the thing that they're talking about. And so we do have this dissembling of knowledge and information. Mm-hmm. Your question is, are, are we less educated than we were before? Well, you know, that's an empirical question, but that's hard to answer. But I will say there's a tremendous amount of uh, overlap between today and the post-Civil War period Uh that ties back. And and it's so number one, we have the cultural strife, which is obviously then and and obvious now. But the other thing that that's incredible about these two time periods is how the flow of information was changing. So newspaper presses came into existence uh, and, and, and sort of began to, to profligate following the Civil War. There were more newspapers in circulation uh, in the late 1800s than at any other period in U.S. history. Interesting. Well, and that's because the printing press is what I say, the equivalent of today's blog or Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone had one. Mm-hmm. You know, every little town had its own printing press. 
a lot of business owners in town had their own printing press. Every single political party had its own printing press. I mean, for goodness sakes, as I say in that TED Talk, the president himself had his own newspaper. Um, they call it, they used to call it the, the president's organ. That's what they would call it. <laughs> and, and which is ironic, right? So now we have Fox <laughs> News. And so, <laughs> yeah. and so there's all these similarities, right? And I think the difference, one might say, is the understanding of how central education was to making, making sense of all that mess. And the tools that it took to make sense of the printing press are similar, but yet different than the tools it takes to make sense of, of Twitter and Facebook, right? And so I don't know that it's, we're like any dumber. We're just maybe not giving kids the, the tools they need and adults, right? Who are, you know, I think a lot of us are lazy, right? Like how do we responsibly engage information in the electronic age? That's actually a tool that we need to teach now, uh, given where we're getting our information from. The other piece, and I don't want to go online, I think the other piece is just like, how are kids doing in school? And, you know, that, you know, we've got a lot more data on, happy to talk more about, but I, you know, I won't get into all that because there's always, the, unless you want to, this discussion of our kids, you know, achieving better or worse than they were 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. Yeah, one thing you talk about in the book, and maybe that's what I should think about, is just that there's a great disparity in the quality of the education across the United States. And so maybe it's not very interesting to to talk about generalities, like general education, but just that there's a, I mean, and I think most of us would acknowledge that pretty readily, that there's a disparity among the quality of educations that you can get across the United States. Yeah, I mean, that that, that is certainly the case. And, you know, a couple of factors driving that is, well, well first of all, we had enormous inequality prior to desegregation, the spending level difference between African-American and white students in South Carolina, for instance, I think was like six to one. So it was enormous. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. You know, desegregation begins to close that gap because kids start going to school with one another. Um, and in the South saw, you know, really a rapid increase in school integration. People say integration failed. It didn't fail. We just stopped integrating. So we saw those, those funding and those sort of segregation gaps close but as school desegregation ended or was required to end, you know, we've seen communities for demographic, you know, changes in housing and, and, and some intentional reasons, some unintentional, but this sort of separation out of communities again. And so we have physically separate, re-separated ourselves and we have taken our own money with us because the way that schools are funded is based upon local property taxes. And so you know, I think it would be an overstatement to say that funding is unequal now as it was before Brown. That that's not true, but it is. It is grossly unequal between poor students and wealthy students, and also between students of color and 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 white students. And on top of that, because of sort of the job market and and sort of housing needs and and lack of employment, student needs are actually higher now than they mm -hmm. were before. So when you say, oh, there's a, you know, there's a $5,000 per student funding gap, that doesn't even go to the question of how much do, student, do students in some of these com communities need now, given how, how limited um, their environment outside their, their home is. And so tremendous need and, and tremendous funding gaps, uh, unfortunately. There's a huge amount of history in the book, which I, as I say, the book is is very dense and has a lot of information, and the history is really worth reading and, and very well written. 
I don't want to ask you to repeat it all, but I wonder if you can identify some of the major historical touchstones that that are relevant to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, that first one with the founders, as we talked about, is, is sort of the starting point, right? And the Northwest Ordinance and, and, and those commitments. Um, and, you know, I talk about the, you know, that commitment doesn't go away, that you actually see, if, if you trace the documents, you, you see a lot of the, the early writings and frameworks of Adams and, and Jefferson in particular repeated throughout history, they sort of pop up in, in other state constitutions. So we have to understand that those ideas made their way into law. But but the real heart of the book, historically, and I think emotionally, like regardless of what you think about education today or, or, or policy or vouchers or charters, I mean, personally, you know, I, I fell in love with the story of, of the freedmen and actually the, the slaves. Mm. We use this broad rhetoric at, at the nation's founding about the importance of education. And we use it in broad rhetoric today to, to try to push policy. And sometimes it just can seem a little bit overblown. Hmm. And I think to some people it can. Right? Mm-hmm. But when you get to read the firsthand account of people who were held in slavery, who were denied the right to read. And prohibited. Prohibited by law from the right to read and to learn to read and write. And, and actually entire societies where in the South where ideas were banned even for whites, right? Sort of like, you know, racial equity talk, so to speak, was punishable in the South as well. Hmm. But when you sort of look at people who experience that, who then get their first moments of freedom, and one of the very first things they want to do is to learn to read. Mm-hmm. It's kind of astonishing, right? Because we all struggle to get our children to read, or many of us struggle. That's not what kids want to do. You you, do, you deprive an entire class of people that right. It, it it's a special education holds a special, I think, place in humanity. And I talk about it in the book that when you deny education, you're not just denying functional skills. You're you're denying freedom of thought. Mm-hmm. And you know, Frederick Douglass talked about it, that like there was this something in his gut that recoiled at being a slave, mm-hmm. but yet he still accepted the ideology of the slave master. And he said, because he didn't have the ideas and the mental stimulation to help him articulate why slavery was wrong. And you start digging into those stories and a lot of people whose names that people have never heard of before you really get a different sense of what education means to us as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's unfortunate that, you know, it, only in the context of slavery can we fully see that. There's a story that I, I love to tell about this. So during the Civil War, a lot of the slaves were on encampments. In Mississippi and Louisiana, they were in encampments in the middle of the Mississippi River. So there were little islands there where they sort of had fled for, sa- for, for safety. Oh, and once the North controlled the Mississippi River, some missionaries began going up those rivers. And a woman missionary tells that she rose up on a rowboat to the banks of one of those uh, islands south of Memphis. And she says an old Negro man with hair grayed by 80 years of life comes to her and says, I knew you would come. I've been waiting on you for 20 years. And she says, yes, yes, I've come and I'm here to teach you. And he said, I know it. And I thank the Lord. And I, you know, that, 
It doesn't even sound real to me. It sounds like something that someone wrote in a script. But I was just going to say, it feels like a movie scene, right? But yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's several of these that I have in there, and some of them are reported by, you know, colonels that are talking to to former slaves, and and they're just they're just remarkable. And so I would say, you know, look if if you're just interested in get in having your spirit touched. So, yeah, skip skip to the skip to the chapters that are about the freedmen and, and forget the rest of the book if that, that's all you're for. <laughs> you know, I mean, they really are special chapters to me personally. Quite a bit of that history then ends up in discussions about our 50 state constitutions and what they say about education, which I was very struck by. I didn't know all of that, especially the part about what priority the uh, governments are expected to place on education. And so can you give us some overview about that? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, um, one of the things that is sort of striking about that period is as they begin to make these constitutions. So, you know, the slaves start making these demands or former slaves making demands for public education, and they begin to put these things into state constitutional clauses. And, the idea and, and the language in, in a lot of them is that education is the first priority of the state. And when you think about it, there is really nothing else that the state does that's as important as public education. So there, you, you look at the constitutions, you don't find anything about health care. You don't find mm-hmm. anything about transportation. Uh, you don't find anything about the fire department. What you have is this singular constitutional obligation to do public education. And, and, and many of the constitutions say, because we believe this is the surest guarantee of the preservation of our liberties. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a really remarkable to me when I read that in your book, because I was not aware of how education figured into not just some state constitutions, but all of them. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the other thing that I trace in the book is sort of the historical development. So prior to the civil war, less than half of the states have affirmative obligations to provide education in their constitution. So we're in that sort of uh, what you might call sort of voluntary period. But what Congress says to the Southern states following the Civil War is that if you're going to re-enter, you have to put education in your constitution. So all of them bring constitutional conventions that mandate public education. And so we have an entire South that goes from none of them having public education mandated to all of them having it. Mm -hmm. And once the South does that, the rest of the nation quickly falls in line following that. And the entire nation uh, has uh, obligations of public education following that. You're kind enough to share your personal story also in the book from just sort of an interesting trajectory from a pretty rough childhood in Clinton, Tennessee, then to getting your degree in African-American studies and then onward to a law degree from Howard University, where I guess the adage circulates in the halls that a lawyer is either a social engineer or he's a parasite on society. I wanted to talk a little bit, if you're willing, about your motivation in writing this book and your decision to go with a trade press instead of an academic text. So how, how did that all work for you? As the prologue tells, you know, education, public education played a special role in my life for, for several reasons. You know, I hesitate to say that I had it rough. I just didn't have a lot of advantages. But at the same time, you know, I had 
you know, my, my family was sort of working class and parents separated and, and lots of movement from house to house and, you know, that, that stuff. But man, you know, my grandparents created a, a rock of stability for me. That's a, a deal maker. But as I say, look, with all of the love I had, you know, no one in my family had gone to college before. And, you know, as I say, we had more GEDs in our family lineage than we did college enrollment. So it was a big deal for, for me to go, but I didn't really know what I was doing or, or not doing or what I, you know, no one was really pushing me in school. And so I say, look, you know, my, my public teachers often wanted more for me than I wanted for myself. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that is a gift that is connected back to those constitutions we were talking about. You know, someone made a decision, you know, long before I or my family got here that said, you know, kids need this. And so, you know, this is the inheritance that I received from, from those that came before me. And so I have a duty to pass that inheritance on, I think, first of all. You know, the other thing that is important, as I say, you know, my high school, Clinton High School, was the first traditionally white school to graduate an African-American. Mm. It was the first place that Thurgood Marshall went after uh, Brown versus Board because there was just about a dozen African-American kids on a hill up behind uh, the high school that the, the, the request was, let them walk off the hill. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. we're not talking about just let them walk off the hill. And so that, you know, that obviously shaped my community. The, the school was, was later bombed, um, not by local folks, ironically, but by people from outside the state. But interesting. Um, but that actually kind of brought the community together. You know, I tell mm-hmm. that in the book. It's that this was everyone's school, you know, white and black, and someone else bombed it. And so the community came, came together around that. And so, you know, I'm also a recipient of that history and that culture. And, you know, I understood that there was a special story about race that was part of my life. So, you know, those things go into sort of my motivation, right? I received this inheritance, but that inheritance is also wrapped up in racial struggle. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, wanted to, to sort of take that on. And then it, that does relate to, to the question of a popular press versus an academic press. I mean, I had offers from Oxford Un- University to publish this book. I had an offer from Yale University to publish this book. And I had an offer from NYU Press to publish this book. And, um, you know, there was a lot of, well, you know, I, I, I called, uh, maybe the listeners can appreciate this sort of professional story. I, I called one of my friends one night and said, you know, the book isn't written at that point, right? You sort of got a proposal. And I said, look, you know, I got these offers on the table and I don't know if I'm going to do a good job with this thing. You know, maybe the book just falls flat. I was like, but if the book stinks, at least it'll say, you know, Yale or Oxford. <laughs> what a funny way of thinking about it. Okay. Uh, on, on my CV. You know, well, it's like they always say, they say with for tenure, you know, professors may not be able to read, but they can count. And that's in terms of like how many, how many books you've published. And if oh they get beyond, if they get beyond counting, they can tell the difference between Oxford and, <laughs> you know, public affairs. Right. And so, you know, and 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 so I was like, you know, if I'm a failure, at least I can rest on Oxford or Yale or NYU. Uh-huh. And one of my colleagues sort of agreed with that idea. Um, mm-hmm. And then I called Cheryl Cashin at Georgetown and she said, look, Derek, law professor particularly relatively successful ones. We have a privilege that other people don't have. First of all, we get paid relatively well. 
And second of all, we can say whatever we want to, and no one's really going to do anything to us. And third of all, someone might actually listen. Mm -hmm. She said, so when I decided to write my books, and she had previously published one with Public Affairs, she said, look, if I'm going to spend a year or two or three writing this book, I want somebody to read it and I want someone to listen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, might that affect someone's chance at, at getting their next job at, you know, Yale or Harvard or whatever? Yeah, but, you know, you have an opportunity. And, she, you know, it's like as soon as she said, and I think I put this in the acknowledgement, as soon as she said that, my, my mind was made up. She wasn't bullying me, but she spoke from a value set that, that I appreciated. Right. And I said, yeah, you know, how could I not, how could I not publish this with a popular press? That's what I set out to do. You know, I, I want to engage teachers and parents. I'm not really in, interested in engaging my peers on these questions. And so, you know, I went with it and it, it was the right decision and, and, uh, all the folks at public affairs have been, have been tremendous in, in supporting the book and, and, and promoting it. So, you know, uh, I really appreciate them being willing to take this book and to run with it. Yeah, me too. It will definitely get a much wider audience in it. And I think the book is appropriate for that. Okay. Let's get into uh, some of the meat of the book uh, beyond the history. So let's talk about charter schools and vouchers and as some background here, and will also help me understand this conversation, how are those different from public education? So vouchers are pretty easy, right? We can sort of say, look, that is a government program set up to pay for students to get private education. There's lots of different ways you could think about funding it, but you know, many of those programs say, look, if the money was going to go to the public schools and you decide you want to go to private school, we will take all or a portion of that public school funding and we will give it to a private school. So that is, is sort of the voucher scenario. And there's tax credit programs that operate with nuances, but it's, it's sort of the same idea. We call these tax credit programs neo-vouchers, but they're accomplishing effectively the same thing. Charter schools try to, or do, depending on your opinion, sort of exist in this gray area between the voucher and, and the public school system. And the gray area is that if you, what the state does is enters into an agreement with a private entity to serve public school students so that any student who lives in the district, for instance, would be entitled to enroll in the charter school free of charge, right? And so from the student's perspective, there's a lot of similarity to the public school system. I say I want to go I enroll and, and, and that's all I've got to do. But there are a few differences. Um, you know, a lot of these charter schools don't have transportation services. So, you know, if, if you need a ride to school, you may not be able to get it if you want to go to a charter school. So that sorts out a, a, some, some kids and makes it seem less like public. A lot of them don't necessarily have the same capacity to deliver needs for special needs. You know, their inability to service students with special need ends up sort of sorting those children out. And so you don't get the same sort of wide cross-section of students showing up in a charter school. And charter schools have a limited number of seats. So they're only obligated to serve a certain number of students. So they can say 200, 300, 400, whatever it may be, as opposed to a public school, which is legally obligated to serve each and every student who lives within the geographic boundaries. So it, it, it doesn't matter whether there's a million kids or a thousand kids, you know, uh, my public school district has to serve them. So 
you know, there are these distinctions uh, in that way between the, the, the public school and the charter. Charters don't serve all public schools do. And then there's the money difference, which is that our public schools, you know, all those are treated as what we call state actors and they're subject to ethics and they can't make money off the school. And it's a government entity, right? Nonprofit. But with the charter schools, private for-profit companies are deeply involved in the hiring of teachers, the purchasing of real estate and all of those things. And they can and do make a lot of money off of, off of charter schools. And so the question is, well, how are they meeting the students' needs if, if, they're, if they're making a profit? Or, or another way, couldn't they better meet the students' needs if they weren't taking a profit off the top there? And so there, there's that difference, and that's a big one. And I'll say, you know, the presidential, Democratic presidential nominee sort of really struggled with their language around how are we going to deal with that problem, it, you know. And you know, I don't want to get people into the nuances of policies, but it, it, it is hard to stop that sort of private profiteering or at least to have the level of regulation necessary to stop that private profiteering in, in the charter industry. So it is public in one sense, you know, kids can come for free, but it is private in a lot of other senses. And so just to clarify, I'm trying to relate all of this just to my own personal experience here in our neighborhoods in, in uh, Southern California. So I could choose to send my child to a private school here. Would I be able to collect a voucher for that? Or is it just for certain schools that you can get a voucher? It's for certain states and a certain number of schools. I don't think that California has a voucher program. I um, see. Okay. Yeah. So if you were in Florida, for instance, you you could uh, enroll your child in a in a private school and and seek money from from the state for that. Huh. There's there, I'm trying to how many states actually have you know probably about twenty or so and it, it's also it's difficult to paint with a broad brush. I mean because Florida is spending about a billion dollars a year on private school education, K through 12. Mm. Um, whereas some other states may have voucher or tax credit programs, but they're only spending 10 or 20 million a year. So there's a huge variation in terms of how much they're going to spend. And part of that variation depends on uh, whether they cap the number of enrollees. So, you know, Florida used to have, well, they still do have caps, but they've raised the caps every year. Like how many students will we fund? So that that's one way that you, you sort of limit the number of people who can get there. And sometimes they do it by lottery. Sometimes they do it first come, first serve. We used to, about uh, six years ago, there used to be income limits on who could participate. So the only people who could participate in these private school voucher programs were people that were some level of poverty, maybe one and a half, two times the poverty level. A lot of those folks aren't interested in private school education, so you never got a huge surge of vouchers. Mm-hmm. But the new thing now is to remove income eligibility requirements. So in Indiana, regardless of how wealthy you are, you you can enroll. And, and Florida has some programs like that as well. And once they began to remove those income cap levels, the number of students enrolling in voucher programs began to surge you know, dramatically. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, I guess my perspective is, yeah, I just don't understand how this works in all the different states because here in California, it's pretty clear fine. You know, you can, you can bypass the public schools if you want and send your kid to private schools, but it's a pretty clear distinction, right? You're not going to get help to do that. It's just interesting how our thoughts often come from the state that we happen to be living in. Mm -hmm. So there's been changes in 
across the states, all kinds of different situations with charter schools and vouchers. And so tell us the ones that that you feel as though really undermine public education. Well, you know, California, I think with its charter school industry was was really undermining public education, right? Because although California didn't have vouchers, they, they do have charters. And, and it was, of course, it's a huge state. But in terms of numbers, you know, I think they had at one point, like half of the nation's charter schools or something like that. And if you, put, if, if you put California and New York together, you, maybe you're like 70, 80 percent. I mean, California and New York uh, were, were enormous sort of front runners on that. But they've but they've started, you know, they started during the recession expanding in a lot of other places, in part because Arne Duncan uh, had made charter schools a condition for some federal funds. And so he said, look, if you guys want to get race to the top grants, which was a big sort of stimulus program, you've got to eliminate your caps on charter schools. Well, at that moment, North Carolina, for instance, had said, we have charter schools, but there's only we're only going to approve 100 charter schools in the state, which which came out to one per county. So one charter school per county. Okay. What Duncan was saying was you cannot create artificial caps on them. And so states like North Carolina lifted those caps and the number of charter schools began to sort of expand pretty quickly. So you have these sort of idiosyncrasies in terms of, of timing. You know, California, you know, they had a case back in the, I think it was 80s, late 80s, early 90s, where their charter school program was deemed constitutional. And so they got a big head start on everyone else toward towards expanding. So charter schools, you know, big, particularly big in, in California and, and in, uh, in New York. And they often uh, tend to be big in large metropolitan areas. So Illinois has uh, an enormous charter school population, heavily, you know, concentrated in, in Chicago, for instance. I see. So you see th- those type of things. On the voucher end of things, Florida has been the leader. Florida, as I mentioned earlier, spending about a billion dollars a year on vouchers or neo vouchers. And the book sort of talks about how there was almost like a sweepstakes going on, it seemed, for a period there, you know, from 2010 to 2020, where everyone wanted to come out with a bigger and better and more audacious voucher program. And so everyone is you sort of start with Florida and then folks trying to outdo them. So you have Florida and then Indiana passes one that's much bigger and it grows by, you know, 600% in a few years. Uh, you know, a few years after that, Nevada says, well, we're, we're just going to say every single student in the state is eligible for a voucher. Nevada's actually has gotten, gotten struck down. Um, but, you know, Arizona wanted to go in that direction. Uh, there's been, a, you know, it's a purple state, so to speak. So it's, there's been a lot of fighting back and forth. I and mean, they've had statewide referendums in Arizona to sort of make vouchers available to everyone. And I think that's the, the thing that's interesting about vouchers is that when it comes to the voters, mm-hmm. the voters have uh, always rejected them. You know, so they voted it down like 60 odd, 60 some odd percent of voters in Arizona rejected a, a statewide voucher program. So these things have been been growing, but they've largely grown by a couple of, you know, sort of dogged legislators pushing and pushing and pushing uh, behind closed doors, uh, including this past year in Tennessee. I mean, the FBI is literally, well, I don't know if they still are now, a few months ago, the FBI was literally investigating the Speaker of the House of Tennessee because uh, of the arm twisting that he was doing to try to get a voucher bill across the finish line there. 
promising people things if they would vote yes on vouchers. So, you know, it's a very determined group of people. And even, you know, even if, you know, the average voter is not for them, when you've got that type of dog, uh, doggedness in, in the legislative halls, sometimes these things are, are sneaking through. And so it's unfortunate. So just to clarify for the listeners, uh, Arnie Duncan was Obama's secretary of education. Is that right? So he, she, he was the predecessor for Betsy DeVos? That's right. Arnie Duncan was the, was the was the predecessor, and he was very very pro charter. In part, coming out of the fact that of his deep experience in in Chicago, which I mentioned earlier, had an enormous charter school expansion, and so he was involved with that as superintendent uh, of schools there in, in in Chicago. So Arnie Duncan is the pro charter secretary, right? He sort of comes in and sort of blows the lid off of charter school expansion. But he was not pro-voucher, to, to, to be clear. And what we see in Betsy DeVos is she started off being pro-charter just like he was, but she and the administration have largely abandoned their charter school designs that all they really care about is blowing the lid off of vouchers now. Hmm. So, yeah, what are her objectives and how successful has she been? Well, you know, her objective... And there's a little bit of, you know, religion going on here. And I don't mean to raise it in any divisive way. But if you know, if you if you look at her, her writings and her family philosophy, I mean, they, they have a different view of separation of church and state, I guess, is the nicest way to, to say it from 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 the way we've tended to do it. And, and they have concerns that public education impedes the kingdom of God. I think that that's, that's the way they use it. And so it is her Wow. agenda. And I don't know whether it's a religious agenda or a private school agenda. I mean, it kind of looks like a little bit of both, or maybe it's a small government agenda. You know, I, I, I don't know. But she believes that that we we need to shrink uh, public school footprint and we need to dramatically expand the footprint of private schools where people can practice their religion and education at the same time or you know whatever they want to do in private education and so you know she from the first year in office was proposing budgets that would dramatically shrink the size of the u.s department of education Mm -hmm. that would dramatically reallocate funds for public school teachers and public school students and move all of that money over into new programs that would fund private school tuition. Um, that didn't really go anywhere, to be quite honest. I mean, I think Congress uh, was not high on the idea of, of decimating public education at that particular moment in time. And so she then started going to, to state legislatures and really trying to find favorable governors who would help uh, work with her to, to get new state programs. And so we, we saw that with DeSantis, Governor DeSantis in Florida and her working closely, uh, Governor Lee in Tennessee and her working closely to get new voucher programs, her and Sununu um, in New Hampshire moving in that direction. So she's been quite effective, I think, in giving, and, and actually the president got involved, which is, is remarkable. I mean, when, when when's the last time you heard a president, you know, comment on a Tennessee state legislative bill? I mean, when? Well, he was, <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the president was trying to, he and Betsy DeVos were trying to help that, that sordid voucher bill I was telling you about earlier. It wasn't just the, well, they weren't, you know, maybe the speaker of the house broke the law and the president and DeVos didn't, but they were help, trying to help push that thing over. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they've been pretty, uh, you know, you've got a president leaning on 
local state representatives. That that's a pretty powerful thing, um, and a secretary of education. So pretty effective at the state level. Federal level, as I said, not very effective until recently. Uh, and in the last year, they've become more effective because they've been w- willing to break the law. Back in the spring, uh, you know, Congress sent out you know millions and millions of dollars in coronavirus relief, trillions of dollars in coronavirus relief. You know, a substantial chunk of that was for for public schools, and it had a formula that was supposed to go through the dispersion. Well, Betsy DeVos cooked up an idea through which she would demand that public schools share their coronavirus aid with private schools because private schools are affected by the coronavirus too. I mean, that was her theory. The problem was, you know, the law said, well, if there's low income kids in the private schools, you you can share some resources for them, but we don't share it with non-low income kids. And she said, well, I don't care what the law says. You know, you're going to share it based upon the total enrollment in private schools, which are in most places, particularly in the South, predominantly wealthy and predominantly white. And so I was one of the earliest people sort of, you know, saying this can't be done. You know, I know federal policy. This is illegal, blah, blah, blah. And rather than her backing down, she sort of doubled down. After that, she actually passed a regulation to, to continue that, that agenda. But, but thankfully, you know, three different lawsuits were brought. And, man, she lost in federal court in sort of record, record speed. And I think the best line from, from those cases comes from a recent Trump appointee, and, and, and the judge wrote in the opinion, the law cannot mean the opposite of what it says. Oh, wow. That's where we've arrived. Oh, my that, gosh. That, that's where we've arrived. So so they are being successful in one level, but it's because they're so brazen in their willingness to break the law, right? And and also, if you, you go back, you know, the president and Betsy DeVos telling the schools that she's going to cut off their federal funding if they didn't reopen per, per the president's demands. I did a little, a, a long interview that was re, reprinted in Mother Jones that sort of explained whether they like it or not, the secretary and the president actually do not have the authority to cut off anyone's funds based upon whether, whether they're in person or online. But that didn't stop them from threatening people and pushing them and putting pressure on them. And so, you know, they, they are quite brazen. And, and sometimes, oftentimes, the biggest bully uh, in the room does get what he or she wants. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, that's definitely the case. So I guess I understand, although I wasn't aware, I guess I understand this push toward allowing people to have religious schools. But here's a grandiose question for you. I'm, there are a number of forces that are organized to attack public education right now, calling them government schools. Uh, are most of those religious uh, motivated or are there other things that are driving those forces? Well, I think we might divide up sort of the the power players versus the constituents in that. And so, you know, I don't, I think the power players with the exception of DeVos, uh, most of the power players, I don't think are, this isn't about religion. I think for the power players, this is about shrinking government and protecting personal wealth. Because if we can shrink public schools and we can move to a privatized system, the government can, number one, cap its cost okay. and, and its ability. So if you send a kid out of $6,000 a year, for instance, this year, and they get used to going, and then the, and then the private school raises its tuition or, or you know, the kid can't afford to pay for it, uh, the, the difference, I mean, it's not 
you know, the government, it's not the government's response. It's a contractor, right? They don't have to increase their prices. So if they can get these kids off of their books, so to speak, and onto the private school books, they can cap their costs, right? And they can eventually just stop paying if they want to. They're not obligated to pay, you know, the next year. So part of this is about, you know, as the Koch brothers and, and, and some others say, is shrinking government to the size that you can drown it in a bathtub. Yeah, right. That's a creepy image. And making sure that folks like me, and you talked about my background, making sure that, you know, the wealthy folks in Clinton, although there's not a lot of wealthy folks, but the wealthy folks in Clinton don't have to pay for Derek's public school education. That's not right. That if Derek needs education, his parents need to work harder or he needs to suck it up or get some personal ingenuity or something, right? And so part of it is this really theory that we ought to all stand on our own two feet. Right. And so that that's what I think the sort of big money interests are, are pushing at. And then you but then you've got a lot of constituents who have legitimate uh, religious desires. Right. I mean, you know, uh, there's people of faith that that want to send their kids to religious school. And I, I wholly respect their their desire to do that and can see why that makes sense for a lot of families. So I don't begrudge them. The question is whether for me, whether government should be facilitating that choice. And, you know, if you're the parent that wants to pursue that education, you think, yes, the government should facilitate that choice. But if you look at our history, uh, our constitution, and, and our and our public education values, the answer is pretty easy that we, we shouldn't be facilitating that choice. I am curious about this idea that we seem to have so many people in the United States who feel as though the public schools have failed us in some way and that they're just hopelessly bad. Like no matter how much money you pour into them, you're never going to be able to get a good education out of them. What, what do you think about that issue? Well, I, I think there's two things going on. I mean, one is a lot of our schools are so underfunded that they're, they're not doing that good of a job. So, mm. so I'll be honest about that, uh, that they need things that they don't have. And the teachers are under tremendous amount of stress. There are high expectations that can't be met. But, you know, parents aren't yelling at the legislator. They're yelling at their teacher, their local school district. Right. Gotcha. So, so there's that. But then I would say some of these frustrations are also related to our racial history. Um, you know, I've got some, some materials and charts in the books that show that privatization is highest in our most diverse states. So when you look at Wyoming, for instance, which is the opposite of that, sort of our widest and sort of most monolithic states, it's almost no privatization in those states mm. and West Virginia as well. So, and, and in Nebraska, these places don't have privatization. You look at the South as one monolithic block and there's a map of it, a color coded map in my book, the highest level of privatization uh, by far in the nation. So I do think there is this correlation between exposure to others with values and, and experiences maybe different than yours that does sort of create this disenchantment. And in North Carolina, for instance, the charter schools, ironically, um, are becoming whiter at the same time that the public schools are becoming uh, browner. So yeah, that sure. the, the charter schools are helping sort people into distinct racial groups. And so and that doesn't cover everyone's experience, but I think we can't ignore the experience with the quote unquote other uh, that is 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 causing, you know, private school choice to some extent. Let me ask another kind of a grandiose question here. So if the U.S. Constitution doesn't protect other fundamental rights, what are potentially fundamental rights? 
Why do you think education is different? And I'm especially thinking of healthcare. And why is that one different? We talk, you talk some in the book about education not really being treated as a commodity in this country, the way healthcare is. Can you kind of contrast those two things for us? Yeah, well, so two things. I mean, I think one of the, the, the Supreme Court's resistance to actually treat the U.S. Supreme Court's resistance to treat public education as a fundamental right is its concern could not distinguish public education from food or health care or housing, right? So that is sort of the argument the Supreme Court throws up there. My response in the book is that's actually a very easy problem to deal with. First of all, all 50 states, you know, guarantee public education. And so it's not like those other things, at least in terms of our Constitution. Mm-hmm. And second of all, and this really goes back to, to the Reconstruction era that I talk about in the, in the book a lot, there's this phrase in the, go- in, the, in the Constitution that says, Congress is to guarantee a Republican form of government in all the states. And so the question is, well, what is a Republican form of government? And the answer to that question goes back to those founding conversations by Jefferson and Adams and others. It also goes to the debates in the halls of Congress during Reconstruction and the debates in the constitutional conventions in the Southern states as they're trying to get back in. And all of them, all of them say that public education is a central aspect, a foundational part of a Republican form of government. So that Republican form of government doesn't just mean voting, it means a public education that equips one to exercise the right to vote. And so my argument in the book is that education is there in the Constitution, in that phrase, a Republican form of government. I see. That's a very good answer. That helps me a lot. So along with all the uh, things that you talk about in the book that are kind of attacks on public education, you also talk about how much public support has been expressed for teachers in public education. And so which are the ones that make you feel more optimistic and maybe others less so? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these ideas that I'm talking about in the book people sort of have them on a gut level and they began fighting for it in in 2018 and 2019 that, you know, maybe they didn't have the sort of fancy frameworks or or historical details, but they'd been through a decade of public education funding cuts of teacher salaries falling, of classroom sizes rising, of no mental health counselors to deal with, with serious issues. And so they understood that their public schools were not thriving in the way that they wanted them to thrive. And so people took to the streets, you know, and and the thing I say in the book is, and it wasn't in liberal California, um, although I know it has its its, its many pockets, but, and it had a few protests, but the the protests didn't start in California or Washington. Mm -hmm. Protests started in the mountains of West Virginia, right? And then they didn't leave West Virginia and go to Washington. They left there and they went to Oklahoma. And then they went from Oklahoma to Kentucky and then from Kentucky to uh, Arizona. And then, you know, the the Washingtons of the world and Californias of the world began to get on board. But this was like, you know, you know, red state central saying, you know, you guys are mistreating our schools and and, and we're, we're not okay with that. In South Carolina, I took a ton of pictures on that day. It's one of the 
most rewarding days I've had in a long time since since my children's birth. When I saw, you know, that the state capitol steps could not hold the number of people who were marching on it demanding public education be supported. You know, the 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 crowd flowed over into Main Street and was blocking traffic in front of the the, the state capitol. You know, they they estimated we had over ten thousand people, and the next closest in size protest we'd had on public education in in South Carolina was something like 1,500 or 2,000 people back in the 70s when African-American teachers were protesting about discrimination in payment. So, you know, it's it, it was an enormous outpouring. And so those type of things give me, you know, a lot of faith that you know, this is a bipartisan issue. You know, there, there's data showing that, uh, and I talk about it in the book, that only a couple percentage points actually separate Republicans and Democrats, even in the South, in terms of their sense that something needs to be done. Mm. So all that is very hopeful. The thing that gives me less hope are moments of crisis, which is what we're in now. Like moments of crisis are unpredictable, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. you know, 2018, 2019, you know, the 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 economy is cooking, everybody's got a job, and we're saying, why in the world can't we take care of our public schools in in, in the midst of this enormous wealth? And now we're at a point where, you know, jobs are uncertain. People are scared about their own situation, their own health, and their and really just their very own children so often. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to make the right decision in times like that. And Betsy DeVos and, and the president have seized upon that moment to, to demonize the public schools and to say, see, they won't do their job. Mm-hmm. They don't want to teach. These lazy union teachers, you know, on and on and on. You know, I'm not here to point fingers. I just sort of point out that we are in this, like, moment of crisis, and there are people leveraging it to to achieve their agenda and, and it's hard to predict where where we where we come out on that i mean I, I point to a few hundred years of history that tells me that in all the previous moments of time public education has survived crisis and has been a pathway out of crisis mm-hmm. but the past is a predictor of the future but it is no guarantee of the future yeah, it's interesting to watch. I see a lot of this kind of discussion going on today about what public education is. Should the schools be open? Am I going to move to a different state so my kid can go to school? I, you know, I see a lot of kind of burbling up to the surface about these ideas. I think the publication time for your book is really great for that. So I do try and be hopeful that when there is disturbance like this in the force that we can have some positive things come out of it. At least that's, I, I try to look at it that way. Well, and I, you know, I, I had a, yeah, I'm like you. I, I, you. I always say, you know, forgive my language. It's not that bad, but I say, you know, I'm the guy that when, uh, when the glass is damn near bone dry, I'll swear that it's half full. <laughs> You're that uh, one guy. <laughs> I'm, that, I'm that guy, you know. So when schools first began to close back in March and April, mm-hmm. it began to set in on people how important our public schools were. Yep, exactly. On multiple. And as parents started having to teach their own children, they realized, man, these teachers are doing a lot of stuff. Yep. It's not that easy. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, this is, a, this is a good moment of awakening. And it was a special moment. I tweeted a little bit about it. But the problem is, is that when we get 
far enough down into our own misery, we, we begin, we, we stop, we stop appreciating what other people do and just say, what can get me out of this misery? And that, that's when we sometimes make bad decisions. So yeah, I still want to remain hopeful, but it, it man, it, it's touch and go. It is touch and go. Yeah, that's the dark side of it, right? And I see that also. You become, and I would too, if I had kids that were still in the school system, you become very focused on your own children and your own personal situation. And and that can lead, I think, can lead us in the wrong direction if we hope to live in a democracy. Yeah, well, and I'll just add, I mean, and that is what is special about schools and your your comment helps me bring that to the fore which is we we worry about the the three r's the reading writing arithmetic but what our schools fundamentally do is to try to make the one out of the many a sort of common experience a sort of common bonding and not to say that they've ever done that perfectly but that that's the idea Hmm. and we need schools to do that because that is not in our human nature Hmm. right it is not in our human nature to share and to look for the interest of all, no matter what. And so, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me, as you say, that people feel the human instinct to, to look out for their own. And and I guess maybe our, our current experience tells us, again, why these public schools are so important, because they try to teach us, or they should be trying to teach us, that society survives by doing things a different way than that. That's very inspiring. I have so many more questions for you, but I know I have to let you go. But before I do, is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners about how they could follow your work or anything you'd like to refer them to? Yeah, I mean, I I am, you know, I try to pick the issue of the day or two issues of the day on Twitter. So you can, you can follow me on uh, at Derek W. Black. Um, You know, a lot of this fighting about policy you, you could see on there. Yeah, I'd also say public schools uh, or public funds for public schools is really fighting th- this battle across the nation right now, particularly on vouchers. And you know, we've got a case right now argued uh, today in the in the state supreme court over a new voucher program. And so, public funds for public schools is a, is a great way to to keep track of that. And um, yeah, and I would say uh, you know support your g- give your give your teachers the benefit of the doubt. Mm. You know, that's one of the things that I see in daily life for myself is that we're all quick to think someone's doing things wrong or could be doing them better. And, you know, we're all trying to do this thing one day at a time. And as I said in a tweet recently, because uh, I started live online teaching back in, in March that I was better in April than I was in March. Mm. And I was about as good in August as I was in April, but I was better in September than I was in August, you know, and that we keep trying to do it better every day. And, we, we have to make mistakes to do that. But th- this is, uh, I think, as the, the head of the Chicago Teachers Union said last week, uh, when they went back to school, we are all first-year teachers today. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And I think, I, I think that's true. All right. So just to remind people, I've been with uh, Derek Black, and his new book is just coming out, I guess, next week, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. So Derek, thank you so much for writing the book and for the work that you do and for coming on the show. Well, thank you for this wonderful conversation. It's been nice to reflect. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. 
As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes, airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.